Amen. Thank you, Jeff Tracy. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 13 to 17 this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 13 to 17. This is the third sermon in our series on worship. Taking a deep look at what worship is, what's biblically defined as worship. How do we know when we're doing it? What are we looking for when we come to a worship service? What are we trying to do in the days of our lives? How do we worship God? Is kind of the central concern for us. And week by week, we're seeking to break that down. I would encourage you, if you're going to be here for at least most of this uh, sermon series, I would encourage you to, to go back online and listen to the sermons that I have preached so far, um, they build on one another. So I would encourage you to, to look at that. We're, I'm looking at a, probably a total of about nine sermons uh, in total by the time we get to the end of this. But last week I said eight, and uh, I keep adding them as we go. So who knows, by the time this is over, it may be a 52-week sermon series. I'm not sure. Um, but we're taking a little break from our regular diet of the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been in for a couple of years now. And we're taking a break for that for the summer to, to really take a deep dive into what worship is and what we're seeking to do here. Uh, last week, we defined worship as the expression of the worth of God based on a proper understanding of who He is and celebrating with hearts and minds the salvation He provides through Christ alone. That's been the working definition that we've had so far. We're going to expand it just a little bit this morning, but that's essentially what we're working with. Worship is the expression of the worth of God based on a proper understanding of who He is and celebrating with hearts and minds the salvation He provides through Christ alone. But this morning we're going to consider what the Holy Spirit's involvement in our lives actually does. Because what we're going to see is that the Holy Spirit is actually at work producing in our lives the kind of worship that God requires. With that in mind, let's look at our text this morning, Romans chapter 8, verses 13 to 17. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we want to worship You truly this morning. And what I say this morning, I want to be right and I want it to be true and I want it to point our hearts towards You. And so I, have, I know that I have no power to actually do that. But depend on Your help. So Father, come near us and teach us from Your Word. Open our ears to hear what you have to say, open our eyes to see the words that are really written in black and white that are before us, open our hearts to be transformed by the truth in this text, open our lives to be transformed according to what we find here. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week we 
looked at the interaction between Jesus and the woman in Samaria, the woman at the well. And, and this lady that he in, has the encounter with, he, he tells this lady that the worship of God, that people that come to worship God do so in spirit and in truth. And it's exclusive. The only way you can worship God is in spirit and in truth. And so two things are obviously true about this statement, or two things that I think are very important about this statement. First is the first part of this, the in-spirit part. We might say that when we come to worship, we have to worship God with our hearts, with our hearts and minds, with our our bodies and our, our souls, with everything that we have, we apply to the worship of God. In other words, we have to mean it when we come here. For it to actually be true worship, it needs to be a desire of our heart. But the second part of that that's, that's also really important is the in truth part. We worship in spirit and in truth. And I mentioned that when we worship, we have to be careful about the things that we sing, about the things that I preach. I have to be very careful about the things that I say. We have to be very careful as a body about the things that we believe about God. Those things must actually be true in order to truly worship God. It's possible then to come to church and mean it with your heart, but push it in the wrong direction. Your worship be misaligned. This is what separates Christian worship from the worship that's practiced in, say, a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness place of worship, or maybe even a Roman Catholic cathedral. It's the the truth of the doctrine that's taught there and, and the belief that's believed there. It's in the wrong direction. These two aspects of worship are very important. And Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms that not everyone who worships actually worships God. Not everyone who comes to worship actually worships God. God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And He's telling the woman at the well this because she hasn't been. Because her worship is misdirected. That's why I said last week that only the truly converted can rightly worship God. Only those whose hearts have been set on fire with the salvation found in Christ alone and who are believing rightly about Him can worship in spirit and in truth. However, it should raise some natural questions when it comes to whether or not our worship is genuine here. The one question that we're going to consider this morning is, how do I know if I'm truly a believer? How do I know if I'm one of those that's truly converted? And this is an important question, I think, because if I'm not truly a follower of Jesus Christ, then I, I, I can't be truly engaged in worship. That's impossible. So this might actually be the most important question we could ask before ever even considering whether what we do here in the morning, on Sunday morning, or through the rest of our life, is actually worship. Because if I'm not a true believer in Christ, if I'm not a follower of His, if I'm not His disciple, then I can't worship Him in spirit and truth. Worship is a non-starter for me. I can't worship with my whole heart if I don't believe in Him. And I certainly can't worship in truth if I don't believe that He's true or that He provides truth. You may already see in our text, and if you don't, then I hope 
that you do by the end of this service, that in order for our worship to be genuine, it must be by the power of the Holy Spirit who changes us into worshiping people. Week one, I said that our worship, in order to be genuine worship, must be directed to God the Father. And then last week I said that in order for our worship to be genuine, not only does it have to be directed to God the Father, it has to be directed through God the Son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, our worship, in order to be true and genuine, must be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think we will see that our, our, to worship by the power of the Holy Spirit and to be a true believer in Jesus Christ is the same thing. There are two observations that I want us to make in the text this morning about the work that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. That's the foundational thing that we're trying to get at is what is it that, 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 how do I know, in other words, how do I have confidence that I am a follower of Christ? Once we lay that foundation, it should tell us a lot about worship. And it's the proof, if you will, that we're children of God is this Holy Spirit's work. The first thing that we see in our text is that the Spirit leads us to kill our flesh. The Spirit leads us to kill our flesh. Look at verse 13 and 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now you see in this text, the stakes are really high. The stakes are, what, life and death right there in front of us. But not just, not just life and death. Eternal life and eternal death is at stake. That's what he means here when he says you will die. Of course, everyone's going to die. As long as the Lord tarries, everyone is going to die. He's not just talking about a physical death. He's talking about an eternal and spiritual death. What does it mean then when he says to live according to the flesh? What does that mean when he says that, to live according to the flesh? Well, in Galatians 5.19, Paul's picking up a very similar tone with the church at Galatia. And he actually tells the church at Galatia what he means by living according to the flesh. And here's what he says in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So at least part of what it means to live according to the flesh is to engage in sinful activities just like what Paul mentions here. Now when we look at the list that's up there, you can leave that up on the screen, by the way. Uh, When we look at the list that he provides for us, it's obviously not an exhaustive list. We know that. He says, and things like these at the end, to let you know there's more that I could list, but we'd be here all day. And so there's things that he doesn't include, but when you look at the things that he does include, there's certainly going to be some things on the list that you've never even thought about, much less been tempted to do. Okay, we know that's for sure. But if you look closely at the list, there are plenty of things that are so common to all of us that it might terrify us to think That these things would be included in a list that if you participate in them, you'll die eternally. Especially if we think about them. Impurity. That's 
That's very generic. That could be all kinds of impurity. That could be impure thoughts. That could be impure actions. That could be impure talk. Dissensions. You have a problem with somebody and you don't rectify it with that person. Divisions. Okay, well now you've brought somebody else into it. All right. Now you've caused a division. Strife and rivalries. Uh Uh-oh, now you're drawing up sides. Now there's all kinds of people that have been brought into this. Many of these things are things that we all, to one degree or another, will take part in in our life. Sinfully so. Paul says here, to live according to the flesh is to die eternally. And to live according to the flesh, at least partly, is to pursue these kinds of thoughts and actions. And I think most of us probably get that. If I were to ask you, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? I think most of us would come up with a list, at least something like what Paul lists down there in in Galatians. But as they say on the infomercials, but wait, there's more. See, you have to remember the audience that Paul is speaking to are the churches in Rome and Galatia. This isn't, at least for the most part, like the church in Corinth. Now, I'm sure that there were people in the churches in Rome and Galatia that had their struggles. They had their temptations, they had their difficulties. I'm sure they were tempted in many ways, just like what Paul lists here, or he wouldn't have listed it. So I'm sure that that's going on. But these letters that he writes to Rome and Galatia are not mostly about churches doing those kinds of things. Most of what he's writing about in Rome or in Romans and Galatians are actually members of churches that are trying to seek justification before God by works of the law. They're trying to seek to be justified before God by some other means than Christ. Paul tells the Galatians, actually in that very same chapter, just a few verses before in verse 3, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's about as strong a warning as you can possibly get. But then in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, you remember Romans chapter 3, there's a famous verse in Romans chapter 3 that you all, you all know, you probably all memorized. But if you look just a few verses before that in verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Because why? Why can't we be justified by His sight through works of the law? Well, He tells you just a few verses later in that verse that all of you have memorized in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, what He says is because we've all blown it. Because we're all guilty. Well, sure, you may not have murdered anybody. But you've gossiped. You've envied. You've lusted. And if you've done any one of those things, then you're guilty of the whole law and you stand under it condemned. See, the law is such a rigid school that one infraction means that you can forget about being valedictorian. You're not even going to graduate. You're expelled, actually. One violation, which we're all guilty of. So Paul's wanting to persuade the people that he's writing to not just 
to not commit acts of evil. Of course he's persuading them not to do that. But also, not to seek to be justified by works of the law apart from Christ. Because it won't work. It can't work. You can't actually do it. And all of this together is what it means to live according to the flesh. That you pursue the passions of the flesh on one hand, and you seek to be justified by works before God on the other hand. As it turns out, we humans love law. We love the rules. Just tell me the rules. Let me know what the rules are. Why do we love the rules? Well, so that we can push the boundaries. So that we can know when we can tow the line. We know when we've crossed over. But you see, Paul is getting at a principle in the book of Romans that's really helpful for us to understand about ourselves is that the law has a, has a very strange effect on us as humans. And it does, it does really two things. The first is that the law makes me want to earn God's favor. See, when I know what the rules are, if I can simply do what's required of me, then I can rightfully earn my place. If I can just know what those rules are, then I can walk the line, I can do exactly what's required of me, and I can earn my place rightfully before God. That's what Paul's arguing in the beginning of Romans, that you absolutely cannot do, no matter how hard you try. See, when you tell me what it takes to make an A, I become the teacher's pet. If that's what it takes to make an A, then I'm going to earn it. Some of you are laughing because that's you. You know that, right? You know that about yourself. But if in Adam I die, if in Adam all die, if we're born sinners, if we're born condemned, if we're born into sin, then I can't earn the A through works of the law. All I've earned because of my sin is death. Because why? The wages of sin is death. Which Paul says in Romans 6. See, the, the law does a, a second thing to us. A second really weird thing to us. Um, just by hearing the command of the law, it makes me want to do the opposite. Anybody say amen? You were probably like this as kids, some of you. I know I was. Just hearing the law or the command inspires in me this kind of can't even hardly explain it, but Paul calls it indwelling sin. It's this thing that just, that just wants to rear up and rebel against the man. Not submit to him, but rebel against the authority. I want to show him who's boss. I want to blaze my own path. I want to make my own way. See, when, when it tells me that I shouldn't steal, I end up thinking to myself, what happens if I do? I bet I could do it and get away with it. When it tells me that I shouldn't covet, I walk away and I think, my neighbor sure does have really nice things. Man, I really want that. See, it's like there's an animal inside me. And just hearing the word of the law causes that animal to grow. 
And so Paul says that there's this weird thing about us that when you give that animal, that indwelling sin in us, the law, it grows bigger with a desire to break the law. So the law exposes the monster of indwelling sin that lives inside me. Alternatively, what does he say here in our text? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See, one of the works of the Holy Spirit that lets us know that we are sons of God is that He leads us to put to death all of those sinful deeds. And He pushes us to put to death all of those sinful deeds, both the worldly passions that kind of rear up in us and our desire to rebel against the man and also our desire to seek works justification. See, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you seek to kill both the appetite for sin and you also seek to kill the desire to somehow put yourself in God's favor, to earn His approval or justify yourself in spite of your, your own sin. But do you see how He did that? Look at the text. Do you see how He did that? He said, by the Spirit, you. By the Spirit, you. In other words, you're doing it. You're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. But first, it's being done to you. You're being led by the Spirit. And that's what he says in verse 14. You're being led by the Spirit. Now, to be led by the Spirit is not to be confused with conscience. It's not the same thing that that person means when they come over and they say to you, the Holy Spirit just led me to come over here and talk to you. That's not what he means here. He's not saying that. We're, we're not talking about merely the, the inclination that you get in your gut to make one decision or the other. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. The right image for being led by the Spirit is a horse that's being led around by a lead rope with a bit in its mouth. You're being led by the Holy Spirit means to trust in Christ. And then to trust that the work of the Holy Spirit coming into your life is going to produce in you true obedience to His Word. See, it's a supernatural work that begins in your heart. That you desire then to kill the flesh. And so the Holy Spirit is empowering you to kill your own works. And how is He doing that? He's doing that through the scriptural influence in your life, through prayer, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, through the ordinary means of grace, both the things that we do here on Sunday morning and then the things you do at home, where you take basically the things we do here and you, you do them at home. You read the Word, you pray, you sing. Through those ordinary means of grace, the Spirit is empowering us to fight those temptations. And at the same time, He's revealing to you your sin. He's revealing to you where you have broken God's law, God's moral law. And so He's revealing to you your sin. And what happens as a result of the indwelling Holy Spirit revealing to us, His children, the sons of God, our sin. We become both contrite over our sin. We're brokenhearted over our own sin. But then on the other side, we also rejoice in the fact that we know what our sin is. That we can confess our sin. That He will forgive us our sin. And through this, through that very thing, 
The Holy Spirit is producing in us supernaturally the actual righteousness that God requires that could never come about by obedience to the law. And He's going to do it in His time. And He's going to do it over the course of your life. So what that means is that the reason why we come to worship actually matters. It matters a great deal. For some, maybe even some in this very room, worshiping God is nothing more than mere law. Well, you've done this every Sunday for your entire life. Your dad did it. Your great-grandparents did it. Your great-great-grandparents did it. And so for you, coming to church is merely a question, well, doesn't God say I have to do that? I've got to do that, don't I? My dad did it. My grandfather did it. We've all done it. It's part of our family heritage. This is what we do on Sunday morning. And for you, the Sunday morning routine is nothing more than what Monday morning is. Church is merely part of the routine. It's part of the Sunday ritual. But when it comes to the daily war of fighting sin in your own life, when it comes to getting up in the morning and really doing battle with your own flesh, when it comes to the killing of sinful desires with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, when it comes to the repentance of sin, that the Holy Spirit is bringing up in your life doesn't exist. That's not part of your daily routine. So long as worship is law, it will be what kills you. You understand that? So long as worship is law, And it never goes beyond simply just coming here and going through the routine things that we normally do. It never, through the work of the Spirit, ever penetrates your heart and actually leads into Monday through Saturday. It'll be what kills you. While everyone else is getting life from it. Spirit-empowered worship is working over time Is the Spirit working over time to kill my own sinful deeds? And it leads me to trust more in the power of Christ to save and less in my own flesh to justify me before God. Second, the Spirit leads us to an affection for God. The Spirit leads us to an affection for God. Look at what he says in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's another work that the Spirit does in the lives of those that are His. Before Paul tells us what the Holy Spirit does, he first tells us what He doesn't do. He does not lead us to live under the law or live by the law under condemnation and wrath. He doesn't lead us into an attitude of following Christ. Well, we're fearful of what might happen if we don't. We're no longer led under the auspices of a God that we fear as our parole officer. We're one infraction and we go into the pit. 
No, instead the Spirit produces the attitude of adoption as sons. And what does he say? Through him we cry out. That is, through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul uses the Aramaic term there, Abba, which is a familiar and affectionate term for a child's father. It would be much akin to the, the, the term we would use today, Daddy. Be that kind of familial, familiar term that we would use for our parents, our, our paternal legal guardian. So under the Holy Spirit, the work that He's doing in the hearts of the children of God is increasing our level of affection for Him. Under the law, God's merely our parole officer. One offense and you're done. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, God becomes for us Dad. Affectionately, our Father. But I think this is really important because it changes how we understand our acceptance in God's kingdom. See, it's not merely a legal arrangement. Well, you did good, and so, in the end, you get heaven. Or you get eternal life. Well, you did bad, so you're gone. That's how most of the world views the gospel. That's how most of the world understands the gospel. But that's not what happens in God's kingdom for us. We're actually included into God's family. We're actually brought near into His family. My children are legally mine. I'm their legal guardian. So if they did something, God forbid, they did something that broke the law, the police are going to come looking for me. Where were you? What were you doing? But if you talk to a kid and you ask them about their legal connections to their parents, they're going to look at you like you've got four heads. They have no idea what it means to be legally connected to their parents. See, when I come home and I walk in the door, my daughter doesn't say, what do we have here? My paternal legal guardian has breached the entryway of my childhood domicile. That's not what she says. She yells, Daddy's home! And she runs to me. She doesn't understand the legal connection that she has to me. To my children, I'm their daddy. That overrides all the other stuff. Amen. Paul's point here is that the Holy Spirit's work in us is to create in us a heart of affection toward God in which He moves from the holy and transcendent God of the universe to Father. And does He stay the holy and infinite God of the universe? You bet He does. I am still my child's legal guardian, regardless of what she calls me. And over the years, I'm sure that will change. But 
regardless of what my children understand about me, I'm still their legal guardian, but they still refer to me as daddy. How do you refer to someone that, that is that close, but with terms of endearment? And that's what the Spirit is producing in our hearts for those who are children of God. Now for some, this is going to be a very difficult concept to grasp because of the way we understand our own earthly parents, particularly our Father. And I think largely, our understanding of God, for the most part, at least at the beginning, comes from our understanding of our earthly Father. And so you may have had a dad that was absentee, or you may have had a dad that was abusive, or you may have had a dad that was overly authoritarian, or maybe he was weak and you walked all over him, or maybe he died before you ever got a chance to know him. And so when it comes to thinking of God as Father, there's this challenge that you really have about relating to God as Father because of how you see your own Father. Well, how how do we overcome that? Look, if the Holy Spirit never worked in our hearts, we would never overcome that. The only concept of God as Father that we would ever have is our own earthly Father. But the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of His people is to move them beyond the concept of Father that they're given on earth. And He may have been great. But it leads us to understand God as our Father far better than anything we could ever have on earth. If you're in here and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I, I might potentially want to follow Christ. But I'm afraid, how could he possibly love me? You know all of the things that I've done here. I'm just going to pull back the curtain a little bit. Every single one of us has the same list. Some of us, things that you've never even heard of or seen. What the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of his children It's helping them to see the overwhelming forgiveness and grace and mercy that is available to us only through Christ, only by the power of the Spirit, only in God alone. And my prayer for you, if that is you, is that you would give your life to Christ, coming clean with the whole list. Own it. He already knows it. Because not only does He know it, He sent His Son to die for it. That Christ could take the wrath that you deserved on His own shoulders. And so that He could welcome you into His family as His Son. Not as a delinquent. Not as what you got in barely by the skin of your teeth. Welcome to the table. As a son or daughter. Let me tell you how we feel about being here with the body of Christ worshiping really matters. This is why I've spent so much time over the last couple of weeks pushing back against our boredom in worship or against the feeling that maybe we might feel occasionally every once in a while bored when we worship. 
Because see, we're coming to this place, we're coming together as a body of believers, and we're all claiming together that the Spirit of God is alive and well inside of our hearts. But what that means is that if the Spirit of God is alive in us, guess who's not bored with worshiping God? The Spirit that's alive within us. So it's a contradiction of terms. He's not producing in you boredom in the study of Scripture or in the singing of praise to Him or in prayer. In fact, His work is quite the opposite. And it should force us to ask the question, do we worship by the Spirit or do we worship in the flesh? Do we worship by the Spirit or do we worship in the flesh? Let's ask another question. Over the last five years, how has your affection toward God grown? In churches all over America, there's a great demand that's placed on preachers and song leaders. Musicians are required nowadays to produce the kind of music that we would listen to in our car. It needs to be professional, quality music. The culture says that hymns are too stodgy. So we've thrown them out altogether. Can't do those things anymore. They're too stodgy. Never mind the theology of songs like, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place, place and fill the atmosphere. They needed a rhyming word with here, an atmosphere fit. So the theology was secondary. So they opted for a more charismatic interpretation of the Holy Spirit. And we sing it like it's not a problem. Never mind how many times we have to repeat the same words over and 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 over. But see, this song really grips me, and it has to grip me. It has to grab my attention. It has to shake me down to the core. By the time the band is finished, I need to have a tear rolling down my cheek. If I'm not, I have it really worshipped. They haven't grabbed my emotions. That goes for the preacher too. The preachers need to be dressed like the culture. They need to preach from a music stand. They need to preach from a cafe table. Something that's more relevant and relates to me. They need to use some scripture, but just, hey, let's keep it short, okay? Use a verse, maybe. But then I need you to really get to really quick how this affects me. What does this got to do with me? Or else you'll lose my attention. Because if you don't say it fast, you're going to lose me. you got to speak to me where I'm at. Well, I need help with my week. How am I going to make it through Monday to Friday if you don't? The thing that disturbs me most about that is that that kind of worship, that kind of music, that kind of preaching is often described in our culture as affectionate worship. That when we see people that are always with their hands raised, I'm not saying there's anything problem with raising your hands, I'll do it too every once in a while. We see people that are, that are laying down on the floor and that are crying and that are doing all of these kinds of things. 
We look at that as affectionate worship. That, that's, that's affectionate worship there. Never mind how doctrinally true it is. See, it's not at all. You see how everything about that is appealing to the flesh. I need to have the music the way I like it. I need to sing the songs the way I like them. I want it preached to me the way I like to receive it. I want you to do it the way I like it to be done. Holy Spirit-empowered worship is driven by a deep love for God from all the people that are here through rich understanding of who He is. It's theological. It's doctrinal. It's based on His Word. And it's the only thing that adequately prepares the body to suffer. You notice that a lot of times that kind of worship is connected to prosperity gospel preaching? Because you cannot preach that you're going to suffer if you sing songs as weak as that. And if you preach from only one word of Scripture very loosely. Because the Scriptures, if they're taught rightly, songs, if they're sung rightly, are going to prepare us to suffer. But that's antithetical to the prosperity gospel movement. To give you an idea of the kind of cry that Paul is talking about here, the term Abba is actually used by someone in Scripture. Paul uses it twice, and it's used one other time in Scripture by someone. I won't tell you who, but maybe you'll get it. Play a Bible quiz, I guess. Let's do this. I'll just quote it. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Well, see, you spoiled it. Maybe it was somebody that didn't know. It's Jesus. When? As he's preparing to go to the cross. As he's preparing to suffer. How do you think the Holy Spirit is going to foster this kind of affection in your life to, for God, where you begin to see God as Father? How is the Holy Spirit going to do that exactly? I would suggest to you it's through great suffering. Where you come to see God as not only transcendent and holy, but actually there for you when you suffer. And in fact, I'm not just going to suggest it. Paul actually says it here at the end of this passage, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in him, with Him. God has ordained it as such that in order for our sonship to be understood by us, in order for it to be grasped by us, in order for it to be seen by us, has to be tested through great tribulation. But it's during these times of suffering that we run to God. And what do we find there but a loving Father who holds us through it? It might not feel like it at the time. In fact, most of the time it won't feel like it. It's part of what contributes to the suffering. But on the other side, when you look back, you realize just how close he was to you. 
you realize how much comfort He provided to you. You realize how many members of the body He surrounded you with. You, remember, you realize then maybe how many people were praying for you. You realize then how many hands were actually holding you. And you realize then that He cares so much for you as your Father. That He cares enough to produce in you a dependence on Him completely and utterly over the course of your entire life. Because He knows that's the only thing that's going to save you. But see, if we're sons, then we're heirs. Which means that everything that the Father has is given to us. Brothers and sisters, true worship of God is born out of a deep affection for God and it's a product of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives over time. So if we were to modify the definition just slightly, I would say it this way. Worship is the expression of the worth of God based on a proper understanding of who He is and by the power of the Holy Spirit, celebrating with hearts and minds the salvation He provides through Christ alone. See, worship is fundamentally empowered by the Holy Spirit because only He can produce the kind of dependence and affection for God that worship requires. So then the question for us that we have to answer in order to understand whether or not what I'm doing here on a Sunday morning is actually worship, or what I'm doing in the rest of my life is actually worship. Just one question. Am I a child of God? Am I truly and really a child of God? Is what He says here about how the Holy Spirit affirms my sonship, is, is that true of me? Am I really a child of God? Because our worship here depends on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that our hearts are conformed to your word, guided by the truths of the scriptures. And I pray that you would increase in us an appetite and an affection and a love for the truth found therein, for you yourself. I pray that our appetite for righteousness would never be satisfied, that we would constantly hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, we know that it's by the power of your Spirit that all of those things are produced in us. And we know that merely by the wave of your hand, by the word of your mouth, revival would descend on our congregation. And we pray for it. We pray that our love for you would grow from wherever it is now, that it would grow. That we would simply be bursting with excitement for what you have done through your Son. 
Grant us, Lord, to worship you truly by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.